Welcome to this special bonus episode of the Passive House Podcast. I'm Zach Semke, Director of Passive House Accelerator, and we're pleased to be sharing a series of bonus episodes recorded at FiasCon 2022 in Chicago. These interviews were made possible by generous support from StoCorp and Zola Windows. In this interview, Passive House Podcast co-host Matthew Cutler-Welsh speaks with John Wolfling of Datner Architects. Enjoy. John, really appreciate sure. your time and, and uh, uh, your presentation mm-hmm. at the Fierce Conference. Let's go back a little bit and uh, talk about how you got into architecture. What what inspired you? Um, that's actually a funny question. Um, so when I grew up, uh, like many people in North America, we had these Dr. Seuss books. Yeah. And um, I had a Dr. Seuss book that was called My Big Book About Me. Yeah. And you'd count the doors in your house, you'd count the windows, you'd count the forks, you'd count the knives. Nice. And you'd also say what you want to be when you grow up. Uh-huh. Um, so I had initially put in architect, and I spelt it wrong. I think I had a K in there. Yeah. Uh, and then I scratched it out and I put plumber. Huh. But I've always had this interest in how things go together. Yeah. And um, understanding the dynamics of things, um, so that's really what kind of led me to, I think, trying to build these things. I've always really enjoyed making things. Yeah. Uh, and granted, as an architect, you're not actually making the building; you're putting together the design. But you really have to think about how the thing comes together in order to design it well. Yep. So, you know, since I was five years old, I've been kind of thinking about that. And it really, you know, some people said, hey, you're, you know, you're good at art. You like math. You should become an architect. I, I'm not sure how much that influenced me, but I think it's, I landed in the right place for me. Right. And so there, was there any influence in the family? No, no builders or? Uh... Uh, yeah, my grandfather was a contractor. My dad, um, you know, always, whatever house we moved into, he was, you know, he would convert a garage into our living room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was always a project going on. Yeah. The house that my wife and I bought in Brooklyn a couple of years, well, it's actually 20 years ago, the first three years we spent renovating it on the weekends yeah. and the Actually, evenings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've got the scars to prove it. And, um, yeah, so that was a really, uh, a real great learning experience. Looking back on it, I wish I would have done a lot more insulation in the house. Right. Um, but yeah. it's... It, it's hard it's 20 to. Years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. Interesting, you mentioned about plumbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often think that plumbers and uh, electricians and yeah, they're right up there with uh, structural engineers. They they can have a lot of influence. On oh yeah, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the performance of a building. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, uh, also on what kind of space you end up with. Yeah. If, if you've got a plumbing engineer that doesn't really think about. Where that piping is going to go, or the pi- the, the 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 runout of it, uh, you could lose ceiling height. That's one of the things that I, uh, when I'm reviewing drawings, when I'm looking at the trades, the disciplines that work with me, the plumber, the mechanical engineer, uh, I always look for those things. I look for those tight spots in the building, the ground floor where the services come out, where they go into the riser, and look for those really tight spots and make sure that they're well coordinated between all the trades. Because that's where things can go wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your practice. So uh, our firm, my firm, uh, Datner Architects, 
We are a mid-sized firm based in New York City. Uh, we've been in business for close to 60 years. The founding principal, Richard Datner, is still practicing. He comes in and, you know, he does his thing. Yeah. Um, and he's been, you know, a great guiding force in the firm for, for that entire time. Our firm is, is grounded in doing civic architecture. Architecture that is making a difference in the public realm. Uh, we do not only, uh, subway stations, uh, infrastructure for, uh, the Department of Sanitation in New York City. We do multifamily, uh, residential, affordable, supportive senior market rates. We do libraries. We do schools. So one of the things that I think makes me and my staff, the people that I, I you know, work, enjoy working with every day, yeah. uh, one of the things that motivates all of us at the firm is this difference that we get to make in our community. We get to build buildings in our city. We get to make a difference, make better buildings for the, for the residents, make affordable buildings so that we have a good mix of income levels, a dynamic city, so that's one of the things that really, you know, I'm very proud of. Uh, I'm really, you know, pleased to be able to work with motivated, uh, inspiring people at my office. Yeah. So it's really, it's a, it's a joy to be able to get into the office every day. How's it feel when you drive past a building? And my kids are sick and tired of hearing about it. Well, I'll, I'll drive through Brooklyn and I'll say, oh, you know, that was a project we did a couple of years ago. They're still waiting on trying to get the grocery store in there. And, and they're just like, oh, dad, enough. All right, we've heard it already. But it's, to me, it's, it is a, a great source of pride that I get to, you know, drive by. And I'm not the only one who, you know, as an architect, um, we often get a lot more credit than I think we deserve for building a building. We, we draw it. We do one piece of it. Sure, we collect all the disciplines. We make sure it's all coordinated. But, you know, there's thousands of people that are responsible for building a building. Yeah. Um, but I do get to take a great deal of pride in that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it must change the way that you look at buildings as just being kind of anonymous, big chunks of materials to, to versus yeah. something you've had a sense of ownership of. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I also, I, I, I learn lots of lessons, uh, not only from my own work, but going around the city and seeing things that, oh, I know why that was done. Right. They didn't think about how the the sleeve of the of the HVAC unit it's going to interface with the wall. So I see mistakes right. that other architects yeah, yeah, have yeah. made yeah. and learn from that. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, being uh, aware of your surroundings. And I think also, like I said earlier about um, taking pride in that, that change that you can make in your city, um, we, the, the firm, myself personally, we take, so, we take such a great deal of pride in making good buildings yeah. in our city, making our city better. What does that mean? How do you know when a building is good? Um, I think when it's, um, well, a couple things. I just had a, a ribbon cutting that I went to a couple days ago. Nice. And uh, it's, a, it's a project in East New York, Brooklyn. It's, um, it's a 14-story building. Um, and when one of the residents shows up, with her child, who's going to be able to stay in the neighborhood and and bring her child up in that neighborhood in a healthy building. It's a, it's a passive house building. Um, the fact that I've created a place for her to live, her son to live in that, in that neighborhood that she calls home, that to me is one measure of success. Um, another measure of success is when we first started building that building, there were abandoned cars on the streets. There was, it was, it was a real gritty neighborhood. I don't see the abandoned cars anymore because there has been this significant investment. And this investment that not only includes 275 apartments, but also 
um, a community center that is a community-based organization that's doing, it's a not-for-profit, they're doing good work, they're actually helping asylum seekers that are coming into the city uh, from, from Texas uh, and helping them relocate and get, get acclimated and, and situated in the city. So they're doing this phenomenal uh, work in the city. Uh, so I'm talking not necessarily about the architecture, but what about, about how it can help create a community. Um, one of the hallmarks of our, uh, our projects um, that are affordable, uh, and often all affordable, yeah. like 100% affordable, uh, is that they don't look like affordable housing buildings. I think that's an, like, that's an architectural response to your question is. So there are a lot of architects out there, uh, that don't necessarily think about scale, think about material, think about the public or the, the, the pedestrian experience on the, on the sidewalk. Uh, and I think that's where some of these buildings really fall down, I mean, not fall down, but they, they fall short. Right. Um, and I like to think that our buildings, aspire to be better than that, yeah. that there is this thought about scale, this, this thought about program, this thought about community, and we push the envelope um, in multiple ways. You know. That result of having a family or parents feeling comfortable, safe, yep. that sense of pride, can you put that into a, a project brief? How, how do you define that at design stage or, or even before the design starts? Um, I, you know, it's, we have the, uh, we're in the fortunate situation of being able to focus on these all affordable projects quite frequently. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a given that like doing something that's fundamentally good. Uh, I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but it's, it's, a lot of our work comes through... I guess the question is how to, how to make that repeatable. Because it's, oh. it's great to have that experience that you know you've done something yep. amazing yep. Uh, and life-changing for someone. Yep. But, okay, you want to do that again. How, yep. do, you, how do you write that down as a, as, a, as a brief for the next project to that, make that, to make okay. that happen the, again? Okay, now I get it. Um, well, I think it's, it's a combination of things. One is that we work with a great... Uh, number of not-for-profit clients that understand the value of providing that. I mean, it's part of their mission. Part of their mission is to provide affordable housing, and not just like superficially affordable, like really deep affordable housing within these communities that actually matches with the um, the income that's in the, in the neighborhoods. Another thing that we do is we we we've learned from our past buildings things like putting the laundry room in a place where you've got daylight. Don't put it in the cellar. Right. Put it on the ground floor. Yeah. connect it to an outdoor space so that if someone's doing their laundry, they can send their kids out, they can, the kids can play in the, in the outdoor area. So a lot of it is about making uh, smart choices about where some of those amenities go. Where, how, are the, how are people going to actually live in this building? How are they going to experience it? Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I think that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, it's common sense, but maybe there's some choices that, you, like, if you put that laundry room in the cellar, in the basement, Maybe you could put one more apartment in there, right. uh, where you would, where you might want to put that laundry room for better functionality and better yeah. resident life. Yeah. But you've got to make that choice. You've got to help that client understand that this is going to benefit the residents by having them have a more pleasant place to do something very mundane, such as their laundry. That reminds me of a, a pro an apartment project in Auckland that I heard about recently, where the the laundry. The shared laundry space was in a, 
a room that had a rooftop garden uh, and also had a coffee machine uh-huh. and ended up being the place where a lot of, most people would hang out, hang out yeah. together during yep. the lockdown yep. because <laughs> they could go and enjoy the sun and have a coffee and, yep. and chat to each other yep. while they were doing the laundry. Yeah. Um, Instead of being a dark, dingy place where you just wouldn't want to go. That's exactly. Maybe on our next project we should put a coffee machine in there. Uh, we <laughs> haven't done that yet, but we should, <laughs> we should look at that. So. Um, but that's a great example of, of a, a specific learning that changes the, the design to make it more usable yep. uh, for the community and, and creates a sense of community by yep. virtue of the, the design. When you say affordable, uh, what's your definition? So, yes. Um, I'm going to get a little wonky here. Yeah. Uh, in New York City, actually New York State, there's a program that just expired called 421A. And it was a program that allowed developers to build buildings and um, not have to pay property taxes. Uh, and it was a huge um, uh, draw away of the, the potential um, tax coffers, the, the, the tax revenue from the city. I think on the order of like $1.7 billion dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, it's like like 2% of what could potentially be collected. But it did help build, and I'll, I'm using air quotes now, affordable housing. And that affordability went up to 130% of AMI. AMI is area median income. And it is a little bit of an abstract number. Uh, but area, me- area median income in New York City is actually New York City. It's Westchester, which is a very affluent area. It's Long Island. Another very pockets of really high affluence. So the AMI um, that ties into this 421A program is a little bit skewed. And some people call that affordable. It is affordable. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a middle income band of affordable. It does satisfy, I think, some of the demand that's in New York City. That program actually expired. But if you've got some exceptionally wealthy people within that region, that pushes that up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so affordable is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Uh, so for a 421A pro, for a 421A program or project, that affordability is actually, it, it, that doesn't really fall in my definition of affordable. Mm-hmm. Affordable is something that is 60%, 80%, 40%, even 20% of that AMI. And that AMI for New York City is this large catchment area that includes a lot of very affluent areas. So I think to really target a neighborhood's appropriate AMI, you have to go down sometimes to that 60, that 40, that 20. Right. In the East New York project that I was talking about, comparing the AMI for that neighborhood to Westchester County um, is just, it's, it's like apples and oranges. It doesn't make any sense. So you have to really go deep into that AMI, those lower bands, to really approximate and replicate the affordability that's needed for that neighborhood. So... Um, that's a long way of saying um, I think the affordability really needs to match the neighborhood that you're building in so that you're not displacing, you're not causing gentrification. Yeah, yeah, because that would be a big concern for those who are They don't want slums and they don't want bad-looking I do think that there is a, a real compelling argument to, um, to having uh, income diversity within a building. Right. Don't just make it all those, all the 20% AMIs have a good mix. And you can blend 20%, 60, 80, 130. You can bring all those people together. It actually, I think, makes for a more stable community to have that, that diversity of income 
Um, so particularly if you're making a building not look like an affordable building. Exactly, yeah. So you can afford the higher rent. You can have those those higher rent uh, apartments help pay for the lower rent apartments yeah. and kind of blend that all together and make a building that's still um, either achieving you know high high uh, performance for carbon reduction, has nicer finishes. Yeah. Um, yeah. When did you first hear about Passive House? Uh, it was about seven years ago. Um, right. And it was the 425 Grand Concourse Project. Christoph, my client and friend, uh, who's also an architect, came to us as, and this, this site was, uh, a city owned site. The, the site that 425 is located on is a city owned, or was a city owned site. And they put it up through a competitive RFP process, request for proposals. Yeah. They put it out for the development community to make proposals on how to build on this site to maximize um, the affordable housing, make a really great program. And Christoph came to my firm, me, uh, and said, we want to do a passive house project. And so it was really the first time that I had heard about this. I became a quick study at it, learned a lot in a very short period of time. And then we were fortunate enough to get the project. Then I had to really <laughs> get yeah, yeah. To, to understand the uh, the details of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was about seven years ago that I first learned about it. I've been coming to these conferences since. Um, so they are um, they're a great way to. I, I've learned a great deal today just walking around the vendor booths. Yeah. And so on that project, have you ended because you're you're busy you're, um, running running a team? Yep. Are you yep. on the tools? Are you on doing the passive house stuff yourself, or have you got other associates? And I have I, I have a, a whole host of really talented, skilled people that are working with me. Right. Uh, I'm a certified passive house tradesperson. Uh, I took the three day training. Uh, yeah. I got got my hands all sticky nice. with the tape. Uh, and, uh, and maybe that speaks a little bit to my, uh, my, my, my upbringing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to get back to that. I always, I always enjoy having like my, my hands making something. Yeah. Um, we have a couple, um, uh, trade or sorry, uh, consultants, certified passive house consultants, uh, in the firm. Yeah. Uh, but we normally hire a, 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 a sustainability consultant to do the modeling, uh, to do the paperwork, right. we know what goes into that, so we we aren't like uh, unaware of the efforts and the yeah. challenge of doing all that, and we know the you know the, the fundamental strategies of how you achieve passive health. So, do you think that's a good approach for someone in your position to to train so that you understand the process, but then use someone? Who's yeah, an in yeah. I I would be really reluctant to to do a passive house project in my office without having one of those either tradespersons or consultants that's cert that's you know an actual CPHD or certified passive house consultant yep. on the project. Right. Because um, then I'd have to be with them like every moment of the project to make sure that they're like getting the pieces in the right place and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. detailing things correctly. Yeah. Uh, and, but I want, I want to have people grow and learn. And, and yeah. so, um, yeah, that's, that's an important. This, uh, this is a big project, seven years in the making. Yep. Give yep. some, some of the other, you got some other numbers off the top of your head size. Uh, yeah. So the project's 300,000 square feet, yeah. 26 stories, 277 apartments, uh, the, the podium of it, the first two floors, is a, a mixed-use podium. There's a 28,000 square foot uh, CUNY Hostos. Uh, CUNY is the city of New York um, uh, Community College. Uh, their local organization, Hostos, is just a, a block north of the site. They have a student center that's going into this facility that's going to help with students that either need 
um, help with their, you know, guiding them through the educational process, or students that want to fast track through the process. Yep. Uh, so it's a great support program for the CUNY students. Uh, that's going into the building. That's also part of the Passive House envelope, yep. uh, and all the equipment and all the the, uh, the cooling and heating is all meeting those those metrics. Um, there's uh, we we did a um, uh, the blower door test, the whole building blower door test uh, at the end of the job. It's right. supposed to get 0.8 uh, CF. I'm, I'm not going to get the units correct, but but we did um, 50% of that. We fully did half of the uh, the required um, air tightness, so it so was like a really high, twice as tight. Twice as tight. Twice as tight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's half, a better way to say it. The, yeah, half the infiltration. Yeah. Uh, well done. Yeah. That's well, a good you know, and that's of the thousand people that I, I'm, the contractor really achieved that, and it wasn't just the GC; it was the window manufacturer, it was the mason, it was all the people that built that envelope. Was it their first passive house? No. They had done a project um, a couple of years earlier uh, on the uh, Roosevelt Island Cornell Tech campus yeah. in New York City, and they had really learned a lot of lessons on that site that they brought to to our project and really helped us focus on doing certain things, not doing certain things. Um, yeah. So that was a, a really helpful part of the process. Who made the decision to do the um, do a single blow door test on the whole envelope on the whole building? On that, or to make that's, a, that's a requirement of the uh, of achieving passive house of, of getting certification. We actually the project just got certified officially uh, the FIAS plus twenty eighteen certification that came in a couple of days ago. So yeah, and that was announced today, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was was there in, was there were there tests done um, during construction? That's a very good question. And yeah. zone tests or yeah. So yeah, we did something called a guarded blower door test. Uh-huh. And I got to tell you, doing passive house, um, it can be nerve wracking, especially when you are tr- when you know that you have to achieve that air tightness. I think that's why they make the door red because it's maybe it's scary. Maybe, um, <laughs> but I, I got to say, you know, if you get the wrong contractor. Yeah. And they don't do the details right. You don't find out until it's potentially too late. If yeah. you wait until all the she- the sheetrock is up, all the exterior material is up, and then you do your blower door test, you can't get to that air barrier no. anymore. No. So and doing pl- this and the plumber's already gone to the next exactly. Job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we did a couple things. We did a uh, a, a window test uh, just on the window on the assembly because uh-huh. that's kind of the weak point yeah. where yeah. the tapes, where the the sealants, where the clips where the sashes, where all that stuff comes together. That's kind of the most complicated piece. It's where you've got all these different trades, the mason, the window installer, the caulker, sometimes the, the envelope, uh, whoever's doing the envelope. So you've got all that stuff coming together. So we did a test on just that piece of the envelope to verify that we were getting good uh, performance there, the good air tightness. Yeah. Then we did this guarded blower door test, which you kind of have to wait till you're you know, some way up through the building. Yeah. Uh, you can't do it at the base of the building because the ground floor is always open during construction. Yep. The second floor is usually compromised because it's so close to that ground floor. So third, fourth, maybe fifth floor is kind of the best place to do that. Right. And your timing of that is really important too. You've got to make sure you've got the components up that make up that 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 air barrier. Yeah. And only then can you test it. And you, what you usually have to do is like tape off certain parts of the building. You're kind of like trying to replicate what the, the end product might look like. But that's a really important metric to, or a really important milestone for a project because then you can go to the window installer or the caulker or the mason and say, you know what, 
the way you have to do the rest of this building, you need to address this, this, and this. Yeah. So you don't want to leave it too late. No, you can't. You can't, they, or you're not going to achieve system it. Sorted out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great result. So all finished yeah. now. All finished out. They're leasing up. Uh, there's a number of people that have come in. There was, and I, I almost, I, I hate to mention this, but it does speak to how important this project is. A couple months ago, there was a fire in a building in the Bronx, mm-hmm. and 17 people lost their lives. A lot of people were displaced. Those displaced families are coming into this new project. Out of this tragedy, there's there is this at least a little glimmer of, of, of good wow. news and hope that we we have this building ready for them to come into. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's really gratifying to see that that you know one for one benefit. Immediate impact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you mentioned a big theme of your presentation, uh, both of you this morning, uh, was about um, the the cost well, cost benefit and, and sort of yep. making the case, but also yep. the journey of of where we've come from. Uh, you talked about. I think it was a really great question you finished with was to say, what have we done in the last 20 years? It certainly made me stop and pause and think about what I've been up to in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell me? or, or do you <laughs> Well, so many, you know, so uh-huh. much has happened since uh-huh. then. And you said that, you know, that was, it was um, 9-11 was, was 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. To, to the world is such a different place. Yeah. Um, and that can be quite daunting to think that far ahead. Uh, what do you see for your firm in the next five years? Next five years. I think we want to continue um, doing what we're doing, looking for opportunities where it makes a lot of sense. There's a, a couple projects right now. I'm not going to say them in case any of my clients are listening, but I'm waiting for that like that prime moment to leap on them and say, you know what? Because of the density of this project, because of this uh, the, the noise, the airborne noise from this 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 roadway or this train line, it makes a lot of sense to do passive house here, and we should do it here. Um, so I want to look for those opportunities. I want to continue uh, educating not only my staff, my clients. And the, and the design community. Yeah, uh, I think the the more people know about how achievable this is, yep. the better. Which is one of the one of the reasons why I come to these conferences, and you know, take the time to make these presentations. I mean, it's not it's great to get all the attention and get all the compliments, but I also see that this is part of this community's job. Yeah, is to help educate practitioners uh, and give people the you know the confidence that they can do this too. Yeah. Is are you are you a passive house firm now? Um, we have I think half a dozen uh, people who are passive house certified. Uh-huh. Um, so, but we have 112 people in the firm. Yeah. So, yeah. and not everyone's and you're doing still building subways and yeah, uh, and it's hard to make a subway <laughs> a passive house. Yeah. Too much air infiltration. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Hey, well, thank you for your time. Sure. Really yeah. appreciate it, and okay. it is inspiring uh, hearing hearing those stories. And I think it is. Uh, worthy of um, um, you know being proud and, and showcasing what you've achieved, but I also think it's also that, that, that bigger purpose of, of helping to um, educate others, but also inspire others. Yeah. So thank you. Okay, sure. Yeah, great. Awesome.